So the Roman historian and senator and orator Cicero once said this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. And to crucify him is what? Well, there is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Crucifixion as a form of torture and capital punishment was invented by the Persians around 500 BC. But it was perfected by the Romans at the time of Christ. Crucifixion is one of the cruelest forms of execution ever invented because the very method uh, deliberately delays death until the maximum torture has been inflicted. So what you get in crucifixion is maximum pain over maximum time. It's actually where we get our word excruciating. Have you ever used that word to describe some pain you're feeling? Hey, this pain right now is excruciating. That word literally means excrucio, from the cross. We're saying the pain I'm feeling is like that, you, which you'd get from the cross, which is an exaggeration, but it's meant to say what I'm going through is so very painful. Did you know that a person being crucified can hang on the cross for days? passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggle to breathe, laboring under the weight of their own body. And at the point of death, what actually causes death? Well, several things can happen. I'm not a doctor, so if I butcher any of these, just let me know later. Not now, later. Okay. Cardiac rupture, heart failure, hypovolemic shock, not even sure what that is, but it sounds terrible. Acidosis, asphyxia, arrhythmia, pulmonary embolism. None of these things sound great. All of them sound terrible. And the natural impulse when we hear all of this, when we go into the text today, is going to be to look away. It's a sobering passage, but friends, it demands our full attention. Why? Because Christ crucified is the very foundation of Christianity. Without a crucified Christ, we do not have Christianity. Listen to J.C. Ryle. If you have not yet found out that Christ crucified is the foundation of the whole volume, you have read your Bible hitherto to very little profit. Your religion is a heaven without a sun. A hearth without a keystone, a compass without a needle, a clock without a spring or weights, a lamp without oil. Beware, I say again, of a religion without a cross. Without the cross, there is no gospel, there is no salvation, there is no hope. Last week, Pastor Kevin preached an excellent sermon on John chapter 18, and we looked at what kind of death did Jesus die. And he gave you this great sentence. He said that the death of Christ was a willing, a substitutionary, and an atoning, and innocent death. And I'm telling you, if you didn't listen to that sermon, you need to go back and listen to it again. Now this week, 
We want to look at John 19 and answer the question of why. Last week was what kind of death was it? What did it accomplish? Today we're looking at why did Jesus have to die? And as we look at John 19, we're going to answer that question in three parts. If you're taking notes, here they are. Jesus died first to fulfill the plan of God. It was no cosmic accident. He wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was to fulfill the sovereign plan of God. Number two, to accomplish the purpose of Christ. Christ himself, Jesus, had a purpose. He wasn't the victim of his father's plan. He wasn't the victim of some angry mob that he went willingly, knowingly. It was the very purpose for which he came. And number three, Jesus died to display the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power unto salvation. And on the cross, Jesus displayed that power. So we'll see that Jesus died first to fulfill the plan of God. Number two, to accomplish the purpose of Christ. And number three, to display the power of the gospel. Look with me at John 19 as we see that Jesus' death first fulfills the plan of God. Now for the sake of time... We're not going to be able to cover every detail of all 42 verses of John 19. We're going to pick up the text in verse 10, but let me catch you up to speed. John 19 picks up where John 18 left off. Jesus is still in custody. Pilate, the Roman governor, has already questioned Jesus several times, and he has found Jesus to be innocent. He said it several times, I I find no guilt in him. And he's reluctant now to crucify Jesus without cause. Now, I don't want to paint Pilate as a good man. He's not. We know from antiquity that he is um, a very harsh ruler. But for some reason, there's something about Jesus that gives him pause, that gives him hesitation, that he doesn't want to crucify him without proper cause. And so he has Jesus beaten and whipped And the soldiers make a crown of thorns and they press it into his head and they take a purple robe and they put it on his bloody and beaten body. Now that alone is humiliating, it's barbaric, and it's torturous. And the hope here, Pilate is thinking, if I can just present to these people this beaten, bloody, pathetic image of a man that they'll give up all of their demands for crucifixion. But Pilate's plan to beat Jesus and just move on doesn't work. The chief priests and the officers and the mob, they're not satisfied. They demand crucifixion, even though for a third time, Pilate has told them he is innocent. I find no guilt in him. But the Jews then insist that Jesus has broken their law of blasphemy in claiming to be the son of God. They also note that they do not have authority to execute capital punishment. Rome has taken that away from them. And therefore, in a sense, Pilate is obligated to do it for them. His job as governor is to keep the peace and to enact and uh, give oversight to the laws. And so he's saying, you have to do this. He's broken our law. We can't crucify him, so you must. They appeal again to Pilate. He gets nervous, and so he takes Jesus back to his headquarters for another round of questioning. But Jesus, like a lamb led to slaughter, gives no answer, no explanation, no defense. 
He's not going to say anything that deters him from his calling and purpose. Now with that background and context, let's jump into our text in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So with all his questioning, Pilate is shocked by the silence of Jesus. He, he's basically saying, if you read it, he's like, he's like saying, Jesus, give me something. Help me help you. Give me something that I can work with. Don't you know I could release you or I could crucify. You've got to give me something to work with. I'm the man in charge. Work with me here. Well, then Jesus fills Pilate in on reality. He says, Pilate, you have no inherent authority over me. The authority that you do have in this historical moment has actually been given to you. In fact, you're a pawn in a larger cosmic drama. And then he tells Pilate that those who have handed him over have the greater accountability and therefore the greater responsibility for betraying him and handing him over to be killed. And here in Jesus' response, we see our first point. That though Jesus was innocent of all charges brought against him, he is not a helpless victim. Yes, he's innocent. But he's not simply a victim at the wrong place at the wrong time. This is not an accident. God the Father has a plan. As inconceivable to us as it may be, this, even this, this crucifixion is a part of the plan of God. Pilate has been seated in this position of authority by the sovereign hand of God so that The plan of God might be fulfilled. This point, if you don't see it clearly here, is made abundantly clear in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter is preaching to a group of Jews, and listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you know, this Jesus. Listen. Delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see it there? It does not get more direct than that. Jesus was delivered to be crucified according to what? Did it say according to the angry mob? No, it said to the definite plan. It would have been enough to just say to the plan of God. But it says, to the definite plan of God, there was no mistaking it. And yet in the same sentence, he says, there's also a responsibility for crucifying and killing Jesus that falls on the hands of those who betrayed, arrested, falsely tried, and execute him. Right there in those two verses, you have divine sovereignty and human responsibility coexisting without overstepping one another regardless of your inability or my inability to understand how it philosophically works. Trust me, I have laid in bed at night trying to figure this one out. I studied philosophy. I wanted to know, okay, I want to reconcile these two things. How do they coexist without overstepping each other? 
And at the end of my studies, at the end of my thesis, at the end of it all, I came to, I don't know. All that work, all those years, and I don't know. I don't know how it works. I just know that time and time again in the scriptures, you have divine sovereignty and human responsibility coexisting without overstepping one another. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. But John also gives us a couple other clues that all of these unfolding details are happening according to the plan of God. Skip down to verse 23 for a moment. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has been sentenced to execution by crucifixion. The soldiers have stripped away his clothes. They've divided uh, some of his belongings among the soldiers. And now they're casting lots to see who gets the tunic. And look what it says in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless and it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. These soldiers have no idea that their actions are fulfilling a messianic prophet or a messianic prophecy written 1000 years before this event and yet even this minor detail happens according to the plan of God to fulfill the scriptures here's another one in verse 19 chapter 19 verse 36 back up in verse 31 for the context since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Remember, there's two people on either side of Jesus. They're not dead yet. Soldiers come. They break their legs. A bunch of Italians. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. For these things took place that the scriptures might what? Be fulfilled. Two of them. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, do you remember how I said crucifixion combined maximum torture over minimum, a maximum time? Crucifixion could sometimes last for days, but in this case, they didn't have days. In just a few short hours, it would be the Sabbath. And this was a particularly important Sabbath on the Passover week. And so it was not allowed for bodies to remain hanging on the cross during a Sabbath. They had to come down. And so they said, Pilate, you know that. Would you help us out? Would you go and, and speed this thing up so we can get it over with, get all the bodies off the cross and have our nice high holy day? We need to get the show on the road. And so they broke the legs of the other two guys to hasten their death. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And the soldier, just to make sure that he wasn't just mostly dead, but all the way dead, takes his spear and shoves it up into his side just to make sure. 
And there, John tells us, blood and water flowed from the wound, which would have been like a, um, a lightly colored red. You know what I mean? So the blood mixing with the water. You see, the torture of flogging and crucifixion puts an enormous amount of strain on the heart and the lungs. And what happens is that during all of that torture and all of that pain, fluid starts to build up around the heart. This is known as pericardial effusion around the lungs. I mean, around the heart and around the lungs, it's called pleural effusion. Am I close? Okay, good. See, I got a doctor right there. All right, good. When the soldier pierced the side of Jesus, not only did blood come out like you'd expect, but all that fluid buildup came out as well. Now again, do you think these soldiers are Old Testament scholars? You think before the events leading up to this, hey, Marv, did you hear we're going to crucify Jesus? Let's go back and read the Old Testament. No, they're not carefully mining the Hebrew scriptures to find these clues to make sure it all happens according to all of these details. These scriptures predicted that the suffering servant, the Messiah, would die a gruesome death, that he would be pierced and yet his bones would not be broken. Friends, this is not coincidental. This is providential. And these scriptures referenced by John, there's some in Zechariah, there's some in, um, in the Psalms, they're written hundreds of years before these events took place. The very odds of every detail coming together coincidentally is impossible. Even if someone knew all of the details, and I've just given you a few of them, even if someone knew, okay, there's a hundred messianic prophecies that we gotta make sure are happening and aligned all at the right time, even someone trying to coordinate it would not be able to do it. The only explanation, friends, is this, is that Jesus died according to the definite plan of God to fulfill his work of redemption. If you read the Bible, you will see God has been working from the very beginning to redeem humanity so that God could once again dwell among his people. And Jesus died to bring that definite plan of God to completion. That's the first reason why Jesus died. But that's not all that we see in John 19. We also see that Jesus died to accomplish the purpose of Christ, which is to say he died according to his own purposes as well. Look with me, starting in verse 16. So they took Jesus, the soldiers, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So Pilate could only hold out for so long. Reluctantly, he gives the orders for Jesus to be crucified. He has him beaten and flogged some more. Did you know that the trauma of flogging killed many before they even got to the cross? That's how brutal it was. And then they would have had Jesus carry his own cross beam down the road to this place called the place of the skull, which is just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And then John simply states the matter succinctly. He simply just says, there they crucified him. I don't know if that's ever just stopped you in reading these passages. They, the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and all that, it's just, get, it's, it's one sentence. And there they crucified him. 
John, who at this point has given us so many details, the narrative has slowed way down, chooses not to detail the horrors of crucifixion. Just simply too much to write. But we know from history that the crossbeam would have been laid on the ground and Jesus would have been placed on top and then nails the size of railroad ties would have been driven into his hands just above the wrists. And then that crossbeam with a nailed Jesus to it would have been joined to this vertical beam. And then they would have driven those same kind of nails through his feet. And once Jesus was firmly fixed to the cross, it would have been hoisted up into the ground. And then the next stage of torture would begin. Immediately the crucified would begin to struggle to breathe from hanging. And with excruciating pain, with all the pressure on the joints, they try to lift up their body just to get a glimpse of a breath. And the crucified would be left to hang by his own weight until they died from some combination of heart failure and muscle spasms and blood loss and asphyxiation. And as was custom, when someone was crucified, they would write the charges on the cross above them. It was a way to say to those passing by, to anyone who would see it, if you do this, then you can expect to be crucified just like them. It was a powerful deterrent, a, a frequent reminder that you were not in control, but Rome was. So for Jesus, Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But ultimately, the way Pilate kind of settles it in his heart is that he takes that accusation from the Jews that Jesus was making himself or declaring himself to be king of the Jews. Now that claim is ironic because on one hand, if you read through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus claiming to be king of the Jews. In fact, on several occasions, it's the Jews who try to make him their king after some powerful display of miracles. And yet on the other hand, he is king of the Jews. Why? Because he's king of kings and lord of the lords. He's, he's the king of all. But regardless, Jesus is wrongly accused and crucified on the cross. Now look with me at verse 28, the final moments of Jesus. This is where we're going to hear his purpose statement. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine... He said, it is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. As Jesus becomes weak and dehydrated, he says, I thirst. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. If you've been with us in John, you know that there's this long extended section. Water, in fact, is a theme all throughout John's gospel. He's able to turn water into wine. He offers living water to the woman at the well. He tells her, I have water to drink that if you would drink it, a wellspring of life would, would flow from inside of you such that you would never get thirsty again. The one who has access to, who can give that living water to anyone, he has become thirsty. He has become thirsty so that all who would believe in him would thirst no 
more. And then just before dying, he says those words, it is finished. Now, as John records this in Greek, it's really one word. It's this Greek word, tetelestai. And I don't tell you that to sound smart, but it's a, it's a really important word. If you were with us when we looked at John 13, you might remember that we talked about, we, we talked about that word then. These two Greek words, telos and tetelestai. Telos is the noun. It means goal or purpose. Tetelestai is the verb. You can even hear it. Telestai. Tetelestai. It means to accomplish a telos. To accomplish a goal or a purpose. Look at, I'll remind you again in John 13.1 where we saw that. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. Back to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the telos. He loved them to the end. He loved his own, and John says he loved them to the end, to the telos. He loved them enough to accomplish his purpose. John isn't merely saying that he was faithful to the end of, 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 of the time. Yes, he was, but he's saying something more than that. He's saying he loved them all the way to accomplish his purpose. Now, what was the purpose of Christ? To go to the cross and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says it very clearly in Mark 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. And to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Every gospel is written to make this point emphatically clear that Jesus came here with a clear purpose, a determined mission, and nothing, nothing would deter him from accomplishing his purpose and mission. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many so that those whom the Father entrusted to him would be reconciled back to God. Here's another cool thing about this word, to die. Not only does it mean it is finished, but in New Testament times, it was written on business documents or receipts or contracts to indicate that a bill had been paid in full. If you had taken out a loan and you were making payments on it, when you made that final payment and it was finished, you were debt free, they would stamp to tell us die on it to say, paid in full, it is finished. This record of debt is gone. Now, I'm drawing this out because the connection is unmistakable. Jesus came to give us life, to pay the debt our sins have accrued, and our record of debt has been paid in full in Christ. Friends, Jesus became thirsty so that we could have access to his living water. He is the good shepherd who told us in John 10 that he would lay down his life for his sheep. He goes to the cross willingly, not as a victim, with intention and purpose to accomplish his mission. Jesus is the son of God who became man, who willingly and sacrificially gave up his life to redeem us from death. It's why he came. Did you notice every time it says that at the moment of Jesus' death, it doesn't merely say Jesus died or he ran out of breath. It says he gave up his spirit. It's like he was in control the whole time to say, and now I'm ready to die. He gave up his life. He, in fact, tells us no one takes his life from him, but he gives it up. I love how the song, How Deep the Father's Love, puts it. And we're going to sing that in a moment to worship God. 
says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why did Jesus die? He died to accomplish his mission, to pay our debt, to give us life, and to reconcile us back to God. Jesus died to fulfill the plan of the Father, to accomplish his stated purpose. And now finally, look with me at the end to see that Jesus died to display the power of the gospel. Listen to how he was buried. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, remember him, also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, which is way more than you need. It's an abundance here. He's being buried like a king. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It's fitting, right, that this takes place in a garden again, where everything went wrong? Everything was made right. John 19 comes to a close and we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea and we're reintroduced to Nicodemus. From the four gospels, here's what we know about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a respected member of the Jewish council. He was wealthy. Mark tells us he was seeking the kingdom of God. And at some point, we don't know, he became a secret disciple of Jesus. And he also donates his very expensive newly cut tomb for Christ to have a proper burial. It's a, it's a tomb that's cut inside of a rock. No power tools, right? Think about how long it takes to cut out this tomb in a rock. Very expensive. And he does this to give Jesus a proper burial as opposed to a criminal's burial in a mass grave. And we've seen Nicodemus throughout the Gospel of John He was the one who sought out Jesus by night to learn more about him. He was one in John 7 who defends Jesus against the Jewish council. And now here he is at the foot of the cross with way more burial spices than you would need to ensure that Jesus has a proper burial. You notice what's missing here, right? There's no other disciples. They've all fled for one good reason or bad reason or another. And now these two secret disciples, Joseph and Nicodemus, they take their private faith and what do they do? They make it public. They're out there in the open. Not only did their faith become public, their faith became up close and personal. They weren't at a distance anymore. They were caring for Jesus. And though it had to be quick, they wanted to give him a proper burial. Now, what caused these men to grow a spine? What caused these men to become courageous, to approach Pilate, to step forward in devoted faith to Christ? 
Well, I think it's that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus saw Jesus die on that wooden cross. And there was something about what they saw that changed him. In the other Gospels, we see that there was a soldier who saw how Jesus died. And his only conclusion was, that must be the Son of God. A guy who had seen people crucified all throughout his career said, yeah, but something was different about that one. I think Joseph and Nicodemus saw the same thing the soldiers saw and it changed them radically. See, John is giving us more than just the details of how his body was buried. He's making sure to include the names of these two men so that we would see the power of the gospel. The gospel has power to quickly change anybody. It's powerful. I think J. Vernon McGee is spot on. He writes this. That ugly cross tells the greatest story. It sings the sweetest music. It brings the best news and the most glorious truth. And it whispers the infinite love of God to your heart and to my heart. Look into the heavens tonight and you will see something of the glory of God. Look at the mighty mountains that are around us and you'll see something of his greatness. Look at a little fragile flower and it too will tell you something about God. But listen, and friends, listen. If you want to know about the love of God, you will have to look upon the cross of Christ. That's what they saw. In that moment, when Nicodemus and Joseph saw Christ crucified, it changed them. It put steel in their back to step forward and it was the love of God for them in Christ that changed them. Friends, The cross of Jesus Christ puts the good news of the gospel on powerful display. And the call for each one of us is to believe. That's what John says in verse 35. He's finished detailing the events of the crucifixion. And then he turns to the reader. I love it when narrators turn to the reader. They say, reader, listen, he, that's me, John, who saw it, bore witness. My testimony is true and I know that I'm telling the truth. Why? That you, friends, he's looking at you and me, that you may believe. The whole point of writing this gospel is that we would see Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God and that by believing in him, we'd have life in his name. No credible historian from antiquity to now argues that Jesus died on the cross. It is well attested. No one denies that. But to answer the question of why Jesus died has caused untold pages to be written. But friends, we've seen it. John 19 is clear that Jesus died to fulfill the plan of God, to accomplish the purpose of Christ and to display the power of the gospel that we might believe. As I close, I want us to consider two questions of application. First, why do you believe that Jesus died? Why do you, you you know he died, but why did he die? What is your answer to that question? Was Was he simply a helpless victim of barbaric first century Roman impulses? Was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was he killed by an angry mob, a cowardly politician, an vengeful group of religious rights? Was he simply just a misunderstood Jewish 
teacher? Or did he die to show us how committed God is to save sinners like you and me? Did Jesus give his life as a ransom for you and me, just like he said he did? Why do you believe that Jesus died? You believe something about it. It's the most important question that you'll answer in your lifetime. Why do you believe that Jesus died? And here's the second question. If you believe that Jesus died for you, do you live every day from that truth? When you wake up each morning, is there a profound realization that you are deeply loved more than you could possibly imagine? As you get out of bed and as you go about your day, is there a pervasive, humble gratitude for all that he's done for you? Friends, we cannot grow cold to the cross. We cannot take it for granted. The reason the cross became the symbol of Christianity, despite the horror of it. Cicero said, I don't even, I don't even want to say the word. And yet Christians very quickly started putting it around their neck and hanging it in their cathedrals. Why? Because it was the picture. We would never forget what Christ endured out of love to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, to save us from death. I want to close with a reflection from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. It's an incredible book. And as he's in the, in the introductory uh, part, he says this. In daring to write and read a book about the cross, and we could even say in daring to hear or preach a sermon on the cross, there is, of course, a great danger of presumption. This is partly because what actually happened when God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ is a mystery whose depths we shall spend eternity plumbing and partly because it would be most unseemly to feign a cool detachment as we contemplate Christ's cross. Now listen to this. This is money. For whether we like it or not, we are involved. Just because it happened 2,000 years ago doesn't mean we aren't involved. Our sins put him there. So far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. We can stand before it only with bowed head in a broken spirit and there we remain until the lord jesus speaks to our hearts his word of pardon and acceptance and we now gripped by his love full of thanksgiving go out into the world to live our lives in his service friends remember we are not detached from the cross it was our sins that held him there. And yet it was his joy to go to the cross to give us life. So if you believe that Jesus died for you, receive that love from him. Receive his pardon and acceptance and also be gripped by that love and live your life in full of thanksgiving to give it all for the sake of Christ. Let me pray.